You're listening to Megiddo Radio. Megiddo Radio is a radio ministry of Megiddo Media. For more, visit our website at megiddoradio.com. That's megiddoradio.com. Welcome to everybody. This is Paul Flynn with Megiddo Radio for Wednesday, the 6th of May, 2020. Thank you all for tuning in. On tonight's program, there's not going to be any live program tonight. And for the foreseeable future, we're going to see how this goes anyway. Just turn myself up there. We are going to be doing kind of a situation where there'll be live program Monday, Friday, and then midweek, uh, there'll be a more gear towards a Bible study. I'll be honest, it's been strange. It's strange actually doing a podcast. I've done a po- just something that's purely just pre-recorded for quite a while. Um, I think we started doing, I say we, but, you know, I... Have been doing. I think the last forty programs have been live, if I'm not mistaken. I think it was episode three eighty. So it's kind of strange to be. Feels like I'm talking to myself again. Maybe I'll go back to that. But anyway, uh, so on tonight's program, we're going to look at two things, two main things. Uh, we're going to be going through our lockdown look at the Psalms. And I think we'll also continue them after. Uh, I think it's it'll be a good thing to continue. Um, Sister in the Lord, she sent me kind of a a suggestion to keep going after the the lockdown ends, and I think it's a good idea actually. Uh, so we're going to go in through Psalm fourteen tonight, and also we'll be going through what my plan is for Wednesdays for the foreseeable future as long as the 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 lockdown is in this current format because as soon as this current format changes the schedule will have to change in some way shape or form. I don't know how that will be I will have to do exams at some stage, and I'm aiming to do my exams as soon as uh, as soon as a bit of a crack in the window happens. A, a schedule, basically, if if there's some kind of release in the lockdown, uh, I have to do my exams in in our college, and the, our college will be empty, and I'll be doing it by myself, basically. Um, doing them at home has not been really an option because of uh, my <laughs> two five year olds who um tend to sing a lot. That's wonderful, but when you're trying to focus on Certain things, yeah, it doesn't quite work out so well. So, uh, subject to change, as is all of our lives right now. So, we just hope that this program will be a blessing to you. So, we're going to go through Psalm 14, and also, we're going to start going through, on Wednesdays, the larger catechism. I was thinking about the the shorter catechism, but I've just noticed, looking through different commentaries, and um, the... It seems like the larger catechism has been more, I don't want to say ignored, but overshadowed by the shorter catechism. And I suppose it makes sense. The shorter catechism, the Westminster shorter catechism, has been a wonderful teaching tool. And generally, in practical pastoral terms, 
um, it's much easier to get somebody to memorize or to go through, especially as a child, but even as adults coming into the faith, to learn the shorter definitions because um, I suppose when they wrote the larger catechism, I suppose they, they said, okay, here, here's where you're supposed to go. Here's, here's a shorter version. And then here's a more filled out version. Okay, of course, this shorter catechism is amazing too. Um, but I suppose in practical terms, uh, Thomas Watson wrote commentary. Um, can't remember his first name, but Vincent it published it's one of the one of the Puritan paperbacks, and you'll see most of the stuff on a shorter catechism. And I've only been able to find one book that is a commentary on the larger catechism that I could find, and that is uh, Johannes Voss. Think that is the son of Gerhardus Voss, and um, if it's the same J.G. Voss who wrote, became a, a Covenanter actually and a Reformed Presbyterian, I wrote a very good book on the Scottish Covenanters. I think it's actually called the Scottish Covenanters. That's written by Voss, uh, the son of the famous Gerhardus. Voss. Anyway, let's get into our, our psalm, and we'll just lead with a word of prayer. I know that it's, it's not a live program, but we'll just pray for those who will be listening after this. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, for your blessing upon those who will be listening to this program, and we pray, Lord, that you would bless them and guide them, and may your face shine upon them. In Jesus' name, amen. This psalm, Psalm 14, is massively important, and I, I'll be honest, I don't know how long I'm just going to spend on this. It, it, it talks so extensively of the state of man and the condition of man that there's a very small possibility, and I say small, that we may not even get onto the catechism today, but we're going to be cutting off the program in an hour, definitely. But I kind of, um, I'd like to spend a decent, a bit longer perhaps on this than I would maybe on other psalms, but we'll see how things go. Psalm 14, this is God's precious and holy word. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven and upon the children of men to see if there be any who understand, who seek God, they have all turned aside. They have all they have together become corrupt. There is none that does good. No, not one. Of all the workers of iniquity, no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread. And do not call on the Lord. There they are in great fear. For God is with the generation of the righteous. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord brings back the captivity of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word. Verse 2. 
lines here are the just look at the first verse the fool has said in his heart there is no god and there's a sense in which there are no atheists uh they have we've all been created in the image of god and lord willing we might get a chance to look at question one of the larger catechism what is man's chief end or well words that that effect it's basically the same thing what is the chief and highest end of man? The first question of the larger catechism. Why are we here? What is our purpose? And we've been created in the image of God, and we've been created to enjoy him, you know, to glorify him and enjoy him forever. Just read the first question of the, the larger catechism. Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. That's, that's why we've been created. Adam and Eve was cr were created without sin, created perfect. They were mutable. Mutable as in they could change, they could fall into sin. But now things have changed since the fall of man. Since Adam partook of the fruit of the knowledge of the, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And from that time, Man has become foolish and darkened in his imaginations. His heart has become darkened in rebellion against God. And it's here we have the fool. And foolishness is the opposite of wisdom. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. There's nothing more foolish to say than there is no God. There is evidently a God. We look around and we see all the evidence of the creation all around us. We see his handiwork. The heavens declare the glory of God at the beginning of Psalm 19. We see also that the law of God, however defaced, the, that image is written on the heart of man. So man must hold the truth in unrighteousness. He must r suppress the truth in unrighteousness, as Romans 1.18 tells us. So there's nothing more foolish, more silly, than to deny that there is a God. There's nothing more, you could say, a denial of reality. Imagine, if you will, you know, you sometimes you come across people who believe the earth is flat or something like that, and you kind of go, what? That's foolish. We know that that is clearly not the case. I'm bringing it, picking it. Kind of a ludicrous example here, just to make a point. It's very, very clear that the Earth is a sphere. Um, it's very clear from creation, from the law of God in their hearts, from our, the fact that we created God's image, um, from the order of creation, etc., and so on, that 
Plus, on top of that, scriptural evidence of Christ fulfilled all the prophecies relating to him, what, over 300 from the Old Testament. And to deny that, that clear and unmistakable testimony, what is it but foolishness? What do we say if someone is shown all the wisdom and here is, without question, the right way. Well, to turn from that is the very definition of foolishness. And for anybody to say, there is no God. Foolishness. They are corrupt. And, and it's not an intellectual issue. The darkness in their hearts... What, what has happened to them is a question of not wanting God to rule over them. So to say that there is no God, and they fight against it, or at least they deny Elohim. They deny the God who created the heavens and the earth. Sometimes in scripture, what's translated Jehovah or capital letters, the Lord, Jehovah, um, or that's the covenant name of God. We have Jehovah, the Lord, or whatever it may be. And then the other name for God in, in Hebrew is Elohim. I'm not saying it's the only names, but the main ones. And to do with creation and the fact that of a judge, Elohim. There is no judge, they're kind of saying. There is no creator. I am not responsible. I do not have to bow the knee to him. And that's what the beginning of Psalm 14 Pretty much said, and there's nothing more foolish and rebellious than to claim something so ridiculous and ludicrous. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that does good. No, there is there is none that do, who does good. And here's the thing, right? In our practical, lived out Christian life, whenever we fall into sin, whenever we're you ever notice when we're more prone to sin, when we're alone, or whatever the case may be? Why? Because for that moment, we're pretending that there is no God. We're pretending that there is no judge, no creator. Now, we are chastised if we're truly believers in Jesus Christ. But we become, whenever we sin, we become practical atheists. And that's the evil. That's the evil of sin. We turn our backs on the law of God whenever we sin. And for that moment, or whatever it is, we become foolish. Because the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. I mean, I haven't even got out of verse 1 yet. <laughs> they are corrupt, they've done abominable works. And there is none... Who does good. 
good things, good works. It's not like that some people have done some good and some... There's none who do good. Our greatest deeds are but filthy rags. We have no idea exactly how bad we are. We're not as bad as we could be. This is not absolute depravity. We're talking about total depravity. You know, this, is, this is man's natural state. Verse 1 of Psalm 14 is talking about man's natural state. Foolishness to man is as natural as breathing. He must be changed by a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in order that he would no longer be a fool, but would turn to the living God and submit to Christ and look to the true Elohim of the scriptures, the creator of the universe, the judge of judges, the one who rules and decides and makes the rules. That God Almighty. He is not a God who makes the world and leaves. He is the just judge. That is the God of the scriptures. And th that this saying no to God may be a, you know, you, you may have erected a an idol in the place of the true and living God. Verse 2. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there be any who understand who seek God. Is there anybody who is looking after God? The source of all truth, the source of all that is right, the source of that which is true. Now, this is an anthropomorphism. God is not literally looking around. He knows everything. God doesn't have to learn anything. Everything that happens proceeds from his decree. So God is not learning anything. God could not learn anything. Because if he had to learn anything, then he wouldn't be God. He would change. Now, everything that comes to pass proceeds from his decree. He knows everything because he has decreed everything. There's no kind of, well, this and this this is why Arminianism is such a mockery to the sovereignty of God, looking down the corridors of time and making a decision based upon somebody's future decision. God does not look down and learn anything. Again, this is an anthropomorphism. God knows everything. God has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. But is there anybody who understood and sought after God? Because if you did see this, if you did understand this, the, the corruptness of, of man's nature and, and the sinfulness of man, they would seek after what was good. Verse 3, they have all turned aside, they've together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. There's not one person, outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, but there's not one person who seeks after God. So when we're designing, and I hate the word even design, you know, you know evangelism programs and all this kind of stuff, and when we're doing outreach and all this kind of thing, don't be thinking about the fallen sinner and what he thinks. 
The tr- he hates the truth. And if you are for a second thinking about, mm, how am I going to make the Christian religion, the gospel palatable to fallen men, then you've immediately you are either watering, watering down the gospel or removing the gospel entirely. Man does not relish the gospel. Verse 4, Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord. And there's this kind of image of eating up my people as you eat bread and this kind of devouring. And And in the midst of that devouring and persecuting of God's people, they don't call upon the name of the Lord. There they are in great fear, for the Lord is with the generation of the righteous. He is with those people. He is with those who call upon the name of the Lord. Six, uh, Verse 6, you shame the counsel of the poor, But the Lord is his refuge. So in the midst of trouble, in the midst of these people who seek to eat up, as it, as it were, the people of God, where do they seek refuge? Where do they seek deliverance? In politicians? I'm not saying you can't petition in certain, certain instances, but where's our refuge? Where's our hope? The next president, the next prime minister, the next government to come in? Where do we look for deliverance? from persecution, name the evil that is afflicting you. Where do we seek? We must seek it in the Lord. And yes, I mean, here's the thing. Well, it's like, oh, I'm trusting him to get to heaven. But, well, here's the thing. If you're trusting in God, in the work of Jesus Christ, that you will be one day in heaven, well, all the other things you're dealing with are tiny in comparison to that. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord brings back the captivity of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. In the midst of all this, the salvation... would come out of Zion. And he'd bring back the captivity of people, you know, because before we are in Christ, we are captives, slaves of the devil. And we are praying, we hope, that multitudes we're li- listening to this program, hopefully, or whatever the case may be, will come to know the Lord. And it's a supernatural work of the Spirit of God that will set free those slaves to sin. Because there's none that seeks after God. No, not one. They've all turned aside. They've all turned aside to what they want. What the world wants is not God. 
And we must not like be like the world. We must be people of hope. Not despairing. It's harder for some people more than others. Some of us struggle more than others in in in, the, in when it comes to this lockdown. But we must trust upon the Lord. The Lord is sovereign over all these things. And what is the Lord teaching us in the midst of these trials? Of this great challenge? Okay, so we're going to turn now to the Westminster Confession of Faith, the larger catechism. And if you have a copy, I mean, there's different copies you can get. Banner of Truth have, I think, done a recent enough one. Um, The one I'd recommend... And I, it seems to be the best, is the, the Free Presbyterian Church of Scotland's own copy that they made. And it doesn't just have the Westminster Confession in it. Okay, it has the Confession, the Larger and the Shorter Catechism, and it also has a number of the other documents associated with the Confession, such as uh, the Summer Saving Faith wasn't originally with the Confession, I think. Um, but other the National Covenant. National Covenant. Oh, National Covenant's here. Hmm. Um, the Solemn League Covenant of 1643. Very important. The Those covenants in which England, Scotland, and Ireland swore before God that they would uphold and promote true religion, reformed religion. The Directory of Public, uh, for the Public Worship of God, talking about that before, how Alexander Henderson was one of the chief architects of that, one of the Scottish divines, and very, very important figure in Scottish church history, and also the form of Presbyterian church government, and the Directory for Family Worship. There's a lot of stuff there. It's hundreds of pages long. Lots of um, good things. Because people will ask me sometimes, what should I get? I'm a new believer or whatever the case may be. Get a catechism. You need to be catechized. And I think we, especially me, I was raised in a Roman Catholic home. You think you have these bad, bad, you know, you think, oh, you know, catechize. <laughs> That's uh, um, Catholic or something like that. Catechize just me. It's just questions, questions, answers. It's a form of education. The scholastics were really, really big into that. So question one of the larger catechism, what is the chief and highest end of men? Not too different from the, the shorter catechism. Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So why are we here? What is our purpose? What is our chief? What is the main reason we're here? And if we don't get this right, we've got everything wrong. If we don't get this right, our existence on this earth is a tragic shame. Not only that, it would have been better if we had never been born, because if we don't understand that, this side of eternity, and we haven't repented and turned to Christ, we'll spend an eternity in hell. We are here to glorify God. 
That's why we're here. That's why we've been created. We've been created in God's image. Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. Man was created in the image of God. So that is a standard of morality by which man must attain to. He must, he'll be be judged against that law, summarized in the Ten Commandments, summarized in the two great commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. You've been created to glorify him. So whenever we don't, it is sin. It is wrong. It is immoral. It is war against the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You have been created to worship God. Man is a worshiping creature. And if he doesn't worship God, he'll worship stones, himself, or something else that is not God. His chief and highest end is to glorify God. What is it to glorify God? Can we add to the glory of God? Not at all. Not at all. We um we can't add or take away anything from the glory of God. But how do we glorify God if we can't? Well, because we, we need to be careful that we don't have some kind of a... There's a Latin phrase... I think it's like to the maximum glory of God that the Jesuits have. And that's basically like that they're adding to and giving greater glory to God and all this kind of stuff. Again, it's to do with man's efforts. No, God is glorious. He never changes, regardless of whether we bow to eat him or not. But that we would put him first. That we would do fruits, you know, that we would obey him, that we would point towards his gospel so that his glory would be manifested and seen. That he would be celebrated. And then it's out of that. And fully to enjoy him forever. There's often this kind of caricature of the Puritans that, well, they were kind of, they didn't want to enjoy themselves or anything else like that. No, it may look boring to the world or perhaps even modern day Christianity, but at the same time, the Puritans by and large, I say by and large, were happy people because they were happy with the things that perhaps modern day Christianity finds boring or perhaps the world finds boring, but they loved God. Were they perfect? No. But they loved God, they loved his word, and they loved, and they they saw it was to fully enjoy him forever. Not the distortion that John Piper and other people have in this, on the, the shorter catechism question, which is pretty much identical. It's glorify God and to enjoy him forever. It's not about you're seeking your highest pleasure, therefore you're glorifying God in that. That's not it. We are to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. If we glorify God and we love him, we will, if we love God, we will enjoy him. We will take pleasure in him. And it's not 
pleasure is the end point in which we glorify God or anything and nonsense like that. But because we love him, we take pleasure in it. We, we talked about in the program before, but the, the love of complacency and that that love in the sense of delighting in him. It's not just uh, you're ticking the boxes and you're doing a few things for somebody you don't like or love. We've been created in order that we would enjoy and delight in, in fellowship with him. Think of the, the Trinity, the triune God, the, the three persons. In one, three persons, one God, one divine. Well, they enjoy perfect, sweet fellowship and love, mutual love one towards another from all eternity. And they fully enjoy each other. We've been created in the image of God. And the image of God, of course, it includes the law of God, but it also includes fellowship. That we've been created. That's just one of the reasons where we're struggling. Those people who are in isolation by themselves. It's not natural for us to be alone. Torture is, you know, in prison, they have solitary confinement. We've been created to enjoy fellowship with God, but we've been created also to enjoy fellowship with other people, other humans. This is the way we've been created. Things go wrong if we're by ourselves. And if you scroll through your Facebook feed or Twitter feed, you'll see, sadly, things are kind of not really going well for a lot of people. And there's a lot of, um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of panic. And it's a massive degree of paranoia, sadly, developing. And that's what happens when that part of our image, we've been created to have relationships with people. I think there's, you know, people are almost with the coronavirus again to the point where they'd rather take their chances with the virus and themselves forget about it because this, this torture being by ourselves or isolated and social distancing is worse, at least they think, than... Um, dying or whatever the case may be. I was watching a documentary actually today, just talking a little bit about that. There's something about medical emergencies that just makes us shut down and our brains shut down. Um, I think like 50 to 100 million people died in the, in the 1918 Spanish flu. In a very short period of time. But and I, th I believe it was far more than World War I, the Great War people haven't really talked about it much. I mean, obviously people are talking about it now to a degree. But we almost think... We, see, with war, you can go, okay, we can have a peace treaty, you can defeat the enemy. But with a pan pandemic, you just feel completely helpless. That's a little, by the way. Okay, so that's question one of the large catechism, and we'll see how many we can get through over the next couple of weeks. Question two. How doth it appear that there is a God? The answer, the very light of nature and men and the works of God declare plainly that there is a God. But his word and spirit 
only do sufficiently and effectually reveal him unto men for their salvation. So let's go through that question and break it down just a little bit. And again, the whole purpose of this is to encourage you to go through the catechisms yourself. And I, I think far more people, this is just a hunch. I haven't done a survey. But I think far more people have read the, um, the confession than have ever read the larger catechism. And I would say if anybody's read any of the catechisms, it's probably the shorter one. So I would encourage you also to read the larger catechism. Sadly, I don't think many people do it. And there's great, rich blessings here and great extra clarification that is there that is not, again, this is not at all a slight, the short catechism is amazing to the point. It's amazing how it's so succinct. It's brilliant for children. But there's just this extra level of clarity and detail in the larger catechism. How do... How does it appear that there is a God? Question two. The very light of nature in men. So the, we talk about the light of nature. The light of nature, you don't see much talk about it anymore. It's more... Since the advent of presuppositionalism, I don't want to get into too much apologetics here, but presuppositionalism... The classical view of reformed apologetics, I would be more from that. This is not evidentialism, by the way, for those people who are into that into that whole world. I was a presuppositionalist guy for a while, the kind of Gordon Clark school for a little bit. Kind of saw problems with that. Uh, I have read Cornelius Van Til, his book on apologetics. Can't remember the exact name of it now. I think he's written a couple of books on apologetics, but I read one of them. No, can't find it on my shelf. But I read it. It was more or less good. I, I think there was just too many straw men there. Often his view of... He basically kind of caricatured the reformed, the historic reformed view as more of a Roman Catholic view in the book. So that was a bit bizarre. Anyway, but... And... It shocked me as well to know that Vantillianism and the Clarkian, Clark's variety, Clark's variety is not nearly as popular as Vantill's, is pretty much recent enough to, to Christian, to the Reformed world. And before that, older systematic theologies would talk a lot about the light of nature. All that to say. I'll be honest... When I remember reading John Brown Haddington's Systematic Theology years ago and talk about the light of nature, it took me a while to get my head around it. Is this just philosophy? No. And it's basically what places like Romans chapter 1, verses 17 onwards is talking about. Man suppresses the truth. He knows the truth, but he fights against it. So there's a light of nature in man. Man has been created in God's image, but the, he fights against that and he suppresses that. This is the first question. The light of nature in man and the works of God. The works of God. What are the works of God? We look all around us, creation. And I suppose a simple enough analogy would be this. If you find a book, 
on a desert island, you don't think it was an explosion in a print factory. You realize, oh yeah, it's um, somebody wrote that. So very clearly, you see the hand of God in his design, and you also see that he's a god of uh, nature, or he's a god of uh, order, of creation. The presuppositionalists will say, well, you know what, natural man's going to reject that, and uh, he's not going to see that anyway. Yeah, but there's nothing wrong with the evidence. The problem is his heart. Um, and these are some kind of things that kind of go on between schools of apologetics. I mean, I've yet to kind of, I have to go through some of B.B. Warfield's stuff to see if it's any different to other classical reformed views but i think that one of the problems with warfield's view of the bible sometimes was he treated the bible just like any other book and that's not good and that added into his view of not just apologetics but also kind of why he ended up re rejecting the end of mark 16 so and, and it's something that's still with us today unfortunately Anyway, so we see first two things, the light of nature in man and the works of God declare plainly that there is a God. And it's not just, and this is the classic reformed apologetic. The best I've ever seen and explained is in Turretin, Volume 1, Institutes of Lengthy Theology. I haven't gone through a ton of Turretin. I'm nearly finished Volume 1, and I've meaning to go back to it for a while. But his explanation of apologetics is the best I've seen, the most thorough I've seen, the most brilliant I've seen. Again, I'm not somebody who's finished all three volumes. I've been kind of back and forth, uh, but just worth it just for his section on apologetics. It's just incredible, in my opinion. Um, I had a lot of questions, a lot of bit of confusion because of what other people read and all this. He did it the clearest, in my opinion, that I've ever seen. So, the evidence clearly says that there is a God. But man will reject it. Yeah, man will reject it unless he's been born again. But it doesn't mean we don't point towards creation. That's what Paul did in Acts 17. And it depends on the person. If you meet somebody who's never seen a never seen a Bible, never read through the scriptures, well, you may, if if so needed, you may start from creation. And this is a biblical argument as well. Talk from creation, talk about the law of God written in our hearts, and then then you come to scripture. There's a uh, Lloyd Jones once said this is enough information, as much knowledge, I think he said, within us to condemn us, not enough to save us. There's no one thing that's not in creation is the gospel. There's all creation, and the knowledge of God from creation will do is condemn you because it'll show you your guilt. The person in the middle of Africa who's never read, or yeah, I, I'm sure they. There's lots of Bibles around, but just say there's some place in the middle of Asia, in the middle of Africa, in South America, or somewhere like that, that has never seen a Bible in their life. They still hate God. They still hate God. 
They've never said somebody never heard the gospel before in their life. They still hate God and reject him for their idols, whatever they are. The, the second half of question two, but his word and spirit only do sufficiently and effectually reveal him unto men for their salvation. It's just the point I was making there. But his word and spirit only do sufficiently, it's enough, and effectually reveal him unto men for their salvation. So without the word of God, this is why we said missionaries all over the world, this is why translations are done in all the language, or they're not, there's languages where there hasn't been translations done. I think there's some 6,000 plus languages in the world. It's an astonishing figure, actually. That's why we do that. And we don't kind of try and make up theories and philosophies of what happens to the person who never hears the gospel. The person who doesn't hear the gospel, you don't go to hell because you reject the gospel. Of course, to reject the gospel, you do go to hell, right? But you go to hell because you're a sinner. You've broken God's law. Now, if you reject the gospel on top of that, that's an even greater, that's one of the worst sins, okay? But you go to hell because you're a sinner. Not because of one particular sin. Obviously, that sin upon all the other sins. Does that make sense? So, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and none seek after God. None. But the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, you know, I can hear people thinking about that. No. Well, how was his heart being opened? Why was he being drawn? Perhaps he was already born again and he needed to see. The Lord had opened his eyes, and how did he come to want to know, have Isaiah explain to him in the first place? The Spirit of God. The Spirit of God. Okay, question three. I'm enjoying this. I hope you're enjoying this. Um, hopefully, and that's kind of what I want to do with the Wednesday show, is just, just have something a little bit different. And I kind of have a topic where it will definitely end at the hour mark. I tend to, as my wife has discovered, I tend to go past the time and, uh, yeah. Question three. What is the word of God? Answer. The, the holy scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the word of God and the only rule of faith and obedience. Now. I'm not, by the way, if you get a copy of this, and you can just actually get this online, if you want to look at it tonight, there are scriptural references included in this. With this. So it's not just, they're just saying things, there are proof texts with this. But I, for the sake of time, I'm not going to be going through many of the proof texts. Maybe I'll go through a few. Um, so the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament, we have to be very clear what the Word of God is, are the Word of God. They don't contain the Word of God. It's not like when you, Karl Barth view, where it becomes the Word of God when you, I don't know, have the warm fuzzies about it or whatever the case may be. Scripture is the Word of God, whether it's speaking to you or not. Well, it is speaking to you, but 
it is the Word of God. It doesn't become the Word of God or stop being the Word of God at any point. And is the only rule of faith and practice. It is the standard by which we test all things of the faith, of faith and obedience. So if we want to know about the gospel, if we want to know about faith, if we want to know about, about obedience, as in, is this truly a good work, or is it our own faulty human reason leading us in the wrong direction, we go to the Word of God, and we compare Scripture with Scripture. It is the final authority. And all other authorities, whether it be church courts, creeds, confessions, they are subordinate to the Word of God. It doesn't matter whether it's the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Heidelberg Catechism, or whatever else, it must be subordinate to the Word of God. This is not a knock on creeds or anything like that, but, but creeds themselves will tell you, a good creed will tell you, that the final rule of authority is the Word of God. Now, what, do the church, what does the Church believe that the Word of God is teaching? That's where creeds, confessions, catechisms different documents will come in and they're needed for unity and things like that. But it is the only rule. It's not that plus a word from some charismatic preacher or something like that, like we were talking about the other day. We must be unified on this. And this is another reason why charismatics, as much as we love them, are not reformed, and there's various different things. I, I think the church needs a, a refresh in what it means to be reformed. And just, not even just reformed, what I mean, mean by that is biblical. But everybody says they're biblical. The Arminians, the Semi-Pelagians, everybody says they're biblical. But we need to really think about what it means to be biblical, to be unified, because we want the word of God and we want the church to be unified and not if you if you're hearing voices from God it's at best at that point if you think you're hearing voices from God I mean then it's the word of God plus actually the word of God is no longer just the the, the scriptures the hegraphe the, the holy writ it's also the audible voice that the person is hearing and that's a problem. <laughs> and it leads to all sorts of problems. Now, if you go through, uh, I uh, I think also we shouldn't be too critical of people. We go throughout history. You're going to find some 17th century Puritans. You know, they might talk about, I had a dream, and then they avoided some storm or something like that. Look, this is a long time before a lot of the Irvingite 19th century controversy and... The, the, the Pentecostal controversy of the last hundred years, or last, uh, since what, 1901 in Topeka, Kansas. You know, it, it's very easy in hindsight to go, what? They were of their time, and that wasn't really an issue back then. And they weren't every five minutes going on the internet about their experiences or anything like that. This might be one event in their life. And some big famous men, sometimes you go, what? But at the same time, at least they never let it go any further than that. And it seemed to be a one-off or whatever else may be the case. 
I think we got to be careful not to be when we read uh, gory back on these men, etc. and so on. But the word of God needs to be our final authority. As as much of a great blessing these men have been to the church. I mean, look at Patrick of Ireland, quote unquote Saint Patrick. He had some kind of a dream leading him to Ireland. You know, was it a burning in the bosom? He really wanted to go. The Lord was leading him, and he had it. You know, that happened. And um, I don't think it's... Re- I think it's really been the last 100 years since the controversy of uh, the Pe- Pentecostal charismatic movements that people really thought about it and made much harder lines. I mean, one of the most... Re- There's not many books that have been ever written about, even the Holy Spirit throughout church history. It's just been one of those issues that has never really been made a big issue. However, I will say this, fringe movements like the Zwickau prophets during the, the, was always been rejected by people like Luther. You know, they are your charismatics of the, the 16th century. Luther completely rejected it. Um, you had ver- various Montanist type movements completely rejected. But what I'm saying is you had little bits of, shall we say, dabblings in these areas, I I would be gracious to, you know, we should be gracious. I mean, there, there's going to be people looking back and, you know, Lord willing, if if we have any impact in the church, any of us, and in a hundred years time, somebody looks back at our testimony, we're hoping <laughs> somebody will be gracious with us and realizing we all have blind spots, I guess is what I'm saying. Question four, how does it appear that the scriptures are the word of God? Scriptures manifest themselves. Answer this is question four. The scriptures manifest itself, themselves to be the word of God by their majesty and purity, by the consent of all the parts, and the scope of the whole, which is to give to all the glory of God to God, by their light and power to convince and convert sinners, to comfort and build up believers unto salvation. But the Spirit of God bearing witness by and with the Scriptures in the heart of man is alone able fully to persuade it that they are the very Word of God. It's a very different um, attitude today, sadly. It's um, with the advent of modern, and I say modern textual criticism, um, we've treated this whole process like a kind of a a neutral science, sadly. But I, I digress. Um, kind of very, you could say, subjective answer, but very much the experience of a believer that he will hear the voice of the shepherd. You'll hear and follow the voice of the shepherd. The talks about here the majesty and purity they are they can say in all the parts and the scope of the whole you know the consistency each part with another there's no contradictions or anything else like that by the light and power to convince so the again this is an experiential argument you know it's like the light and power to convince convert sinners to build up believers, we know when we read through the Psalms, etc. and so on, it encourages us and builds us up in the most holy faith. And the Spirit of God bearing witness by 
and with the the scriptures, you know, there's something that as believers we see that this is the word of God in the heart of men. And as it says here in the, the larger catechism, is able fully to persuade is that they are the very word of God. And there's a little bit of that, like even I remember when I saved a short time and I had no qualms about, I didn't need a big long apologetics course to say, how about this part? How about that part? I accepted all of the word of God all of the Bible is the word of God. Now, when I was first saved, I came out of a science background. I had a background in evolution because, you know, that was part of the science. It's part of, a part of every science. It's more of a tag on, you know, let's say millions of years ago. But I just looked at it and went, no, no, I believe this. My heart was changed and I was, okay. Six days. No big problem. And we accept it by faith. We trust God's word. That's kind of what the answer is getting at there. And is alone. Spirit of God bearing witness, buying with the scriptures in the heart of man, is alone able to fully persuade it that they are the very word of God. Here's the thing. You can show a person all the evidence, all the things. And unless the spirit of God has given them a new heart, a new nature, unless they've been given the gift of faith, they'll never, ever trust this. Last question we're going to look at before we wrap up for tonight's program. Uh, question five. What do the Holy Spirit, what, does, what do the scriptures principally teach? Answer. The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God. We'll just stop there for a second. Oh yeah, we'll read the whole thing first. Um, the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of men. Okay, so, two things there. What man is to believe concerning God. And again, it's not, it's not our feelings, it's not what we think, this is why we don't make images of Christ or the Godhead or anything else like that. What we are to think about God or how we, what we are to believe about God is to come from the word of God itself and from no other source, not from our imagination, not from Christian films, so-called Christian films at times, or anything else. It's to come from the word of God and what duty God requires of man. How do we know what is required of us? How do we know the requirement of Adam in the Garden of Eden? The word of God. How do we know what we're to do, that we're to repent and believe the gospel and to turn from sin to Christ, the word of God? Why are we here? We're here to glorify God. Start a program, we, we looked at the, the state of man. We've been, we've been created, or the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Without the regenerating work of the Spirit of God, man will never do that, ever. So we need God, and we need to pray for those people who are still in rebellion against God, our neighbors, our, our family, people we know who have heard the gospel over and over again. Perhaps people who have attended church 
never repented and believed the gospel. Perhaps this is you listening to this. Pray that you will see why you've been put on this earth. Why you are here. Why are you here? That question, I hope by God's grace, will drive you to faith in Jesus Christ. This has been Paul Flynn. Talk to you again Friday.